KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. From KCRW, I'm Kim Masters, and this is The Business. Filmmaker and war correspondent Mstislav Chernov faced grave danger shooting his Oscar-nominated documentary, 20 Days in Mariupol. But he couldn't stand idly by while Vladimir Putin's army laid waste to his homeland. You can't really stop bleeding with a photo or a video. You cannot resurrect the dead by making a film. But you still stay in there because when the crime is happening and you're just standing aside and not doing anything, you feel like or participating in the crime. The BAFTA-winning director shares how an Associated Press assignment in war-torn Ukraine led to his devastating Oscar contender for Best Documentary. He also talks about the importance of keeping the world's eyes on the war in Ukraine. But first we banter. Stick around. It's The Business from KCRW. I am joined by my associate in banter, Matt Bellany. Hello, Matt. Hi there. So neither one of us is surprised that a lawsuit has been filed over this sports entity that Fox, Disney and Warner Brothers Discovery have announced where they are going to keep these various sports properties where you would originally watch them now if you want to continue to watch them that way on Turner or wherever. But they are also going to create the streamer, which is going to be like year-round sports. And people are calling this Spulu. That's uh, the made-up nickname in Hollywood. So this is a big deal, or it could be. But Fubo has filed a billion-dollar lawsuit. I mean, a billion dollars. People name numbers in lawsuits all the time. But, you know, trying to make an impression here, a billion dollars. And they are claiming that this is putting them at a huge disadvantage and that these companies have twisted their arm to carry expensive stuff they don't want. And now they're saying this is an antitrust problem and that this needs to stop. Yeah, it's an interesting one here because Fubo TV has positioned itself as a sports-focused streaming service, it has a few million subscribers, and now they look at their partners on that service, the channel providers, and they are doing something that they do not allow Fubo TV to do. They're saying it's, quote, extreme suppression of competition in the U.S. sports-focused streaming market, which basically means that these channels that the joint venture, Spulu, are putting together are specifically tailored for the sports fan in a way that these companies do not allow FUBU TV to put together. You have to take other channels if you want the sports-focused ones from the big providers. And it's a pretty obvious connection there to say, well, wait a second, if you are going to favor yourself over your partners, that's not fair. We'll see if it is. I mean, I think these companies will argue that you know, it's their right to put together a package that they want to put together if they want to do it. If others don't want to subscribe to them, they cannot subscribe. Um, it'll be an interesting challenge to see what a judge thinks of this. Yeah. I mean, this is the kind of uh, fallout we thought would happen, and here it is already. Let me turn to the unfortunate Madam Web. This was a <laughs> Sony picture that opened the past weekend and did not open well. I mean, people, there was almost a loathing of this movie that was like, remarkable. People gave it a C-plus cinema score, I think, which is a really bad score on the way out of the theater. So it grossed $26.2 million, which is not nearly enough for a film that Sony claims cost $80 million, when it really probably cost a bit over $100 million. And this represents a couple of things. One 
one of which is that Sony has had the rights to Spider-Man related stuff and they are trying, were trying at least, to create a universe, um, a Madam Web universe, where there would be other Madam Webs and they would, I guess, fight crime. I don't know, because <laughs> I have not seen Madam Web, although I know you find that hard to believe. And also, you know, if you want to look at it through a certain lens, another alarming sign of superhero fatigue, to the point where, you know, if I'm James Gunn trying to retool the DC properties at Warner Brothers Discovery, this might make me nervous. You know, he's had a lot of success, but it, the question is, if you come at it a certain way, like I think with Deadpool might for Disney, the audiences may show up. But if it's a bigger problem that's like entrenched weariness with these superheroes, you know, that's going to be a huge impact on multiple studios. Yeah, the Sony Marvel spinoff universe has sort of been the redheaded stepchild of the superhero genre. And I think they're walking into a general superhero fatigue where it's got to be great. You can't just release a superhero movie now and expect audiences to show up. We saw that last year with things like The Flash and Shazam 2 and even, you know, some of the Marvel MCU stuff like the Marvels. Sony has never really gone all in on this stuff. Yeah, they've greenlit the spinoffs. They have Venom and they kind of lucked out with that. It did really well with Tom Hardy. They have two other movies still to come out this year. And the Spider-Verse. Don't forget the Spider-Verse. Well, that's a whole separate thing. The animation has actually worked for Sony. The Spider-Verse movies are actually great. They won an Oscar and they've done very well. But the live action stuff, they're hanging them all on these rights to do Spider-Man and Spider-Man universe movies. And the audience is sniffing out that these are not A-level heroes. They are not being given the kind of budgets that produce the, you know, big moments that people like in these movies. They are making them for $80, $100 million, not $200 million, which is what Disney spends on those movies, if not more. And it just feels like it's not enough. And these days in the theaters, not enough is going to lead to losses. Yes. I mean, Tom Rothman has been very skillful at running Sony Pictures. He doesn't have a streamer, which may be a blessing, you know, because he can be an arms dealer and not worry. He's got about... a very lucrative Netflix deal as well, which these movies, yes. you know, go to Netflix after a few months. Right. So he's got that instead of trying to make a streamer work. And he's very well known for leaning on budgets. He's done very, very well with a not great hand. But this particular thing just feels like too little and maybe too late. Maybe. I mean, you never know. If one of these things was actually good, maybe it could break through. But the other thing about the Sony Marvel movies is they haven't been good. Neither critics nor fans have really liked them. So where does that leave you? It just sort of leaves you no man's land. And that's what happened this past weekend, $26 million for an opening. Frankly, they're lucky they got there because it was a big holiday weekend and Valentine's Day fell on a Wednesday. Like, that was probably smart of them to put that on that date because in a regular weekend, it would have grossed half that. Yeah. And I'll just quickly say, you know, props to Paramount for dating One Love, the Bob Marley movie on that weekend, because people are hungry for that kind of entertainment. People really turned out for that one. So the news wasn't all bad. No, but overall box office still way down this year. Way down. Yeah. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. That's Matt Bellany, founding partner of Puck News. In March 2022, Mstislav Chernoff was an Associated Press reporter covering Russia's bloody attack on the town of Mariupol. 
Over the course of 20 days, Chernoff captured some of the most devastating images to emerge from Ukraine. Despite the physical risk, Chernoff felt a sense of mission to show the world the carnage that was being visited on the civilians of the town. He and his team won a Pulitzer for their work. Then, out of the 30 hours that he had shot, Chernoff cut together a harrowing documentary now in contention for Oscar. In the opening scene of 20 Days in Mariupol, the filmmaker describes the bleak situation as Russia began to besiege the town. This is the first time I saw the, the Russian sign of war. The hospital is surrounded. Dozens of doctors, hundreds of patients, and us. I have no illusions about what will happen to us if we are caught. So let's talk about how this came to be, because I think you started out being a photographer, not necessarily in journalism or news or anything like that, war zone, or is that wrong? I don't know. No, it is right. Uh, I actually started as a fine art photographer. Then I moved to documentary and I specialized in healthcare and social issues. Uh, I worked with various NGOs. And then Russia attacked Ukraine in 2014. And me and many other uh, journalists and documentary photographers and filmmakers, we automatically became war correspondents because, well, the war started in our country. As I understand it from things that I read, you were shooting in Istanbul, right? In Turkey, when there were some protests there. So this is, I think, well before the invasion of Ukraine, many years. Well, that's, uh, you did your research. <laughs> well, credit our producer, but... <laughs> well, that was actually probably one moment when I thought I need to go deeper in documentary. That was the moment... I cannot say it was a breaking moment in my career when I decided to become a, a war correspondent, but that was the first kind of a strong and very, very real experience after which I felt that this is something I can do. And if the opportunity arises, that I will do. And then next year, revolution in Ukraine started mm -hmm. and annexation of Crimea happened and uh, then the invasion Yes. And you had been, I think, injured in 2014. Police threw a stun grenade at you. Yeah, yeah. And is your reaction, I mean, a lot of people would be like, I thank you, but I need to go someplace safe now. But you went just in the opposite way. Yeah, you're right. Every time, every time something like that happened to me, I think I, uh, I just went forward. At that moment, yeah, I lost, almost lost my eye and uh, I still have some pieces of shrapnel in my leg after that. And since then... I had many near-death experiences, which I'd rather not to have. But when it happens to you, when a sniper shoots you, I was shot by a sniper. Fortunately, I wasn't injured. I was just, let's say, traumatized. <laughs> I think it, well, you were wearing uh, a vest, right? Is that yeah, I was wearing mm -hmm. a vest. Uh, uh, so that saved me. But for example, after an event like this, after uh, you, you're facing a choice, whether you continue or, or, you, or you stop, it's a conscious choice. Yes. But if it's made, then then you just stick to it. And sooner or later, your body comes in peace with that. Because it's not the brain who actually makes a choice, if you think about it. It's a body that, <laughs> that allows you to continue or not. 
I do wonder, there's a little bit of a, I mean, I've never been a war correspondent, but I've known some, and it does become kind of an addiction, I think, because it's the adrenaline is pumping and you feel like it's the most important thing in the world, you know, because it's a war. And I don't know if you feel like you have that kind of addiction. addiction. Yeah. I I have seen, um, again, a circle of conflict journalists is is not a very wide circle. There There's a certain type of people who do this work and you keep meeting them in different wars across the world. And there are different motivations. There are people who are motivated by this adrenaline drive. There are also people who are motivated by kind of a mission they take on themselves and they uh, sometimes publicly stated, sometimes they quietly do their work. It's a mission of trying to make a world a better place and trying to make sure that the world knows about the tragedies that are happening. But again, when you state it like that, and it sounds like a mission, it loses its core value. I am not driven by adrenaline. I know the rush, but I would rather not feel it. Uh, uh, but I am driven by a wish to be where the history is created. For a long time, I have experienced the world through screens and through books, through news and I always felt that I need to be closer to reality to really feel it to really know how is it and that event you mentioned in Taksim Square in Turkey in Turkey yes when I was standing in, in the middle of that square and there was a police car that was burning in front of me and people were running back and forth and there was a, a fight happening in the background and someone was injured and all of this was happening around me. And I remember even not shooting that much at that point. I wasn't taking a lot of photos. I just looked at it and I thought, this is the most real experience I've ever had in my life. Although it is probably the most absurd one I had at that point. So that gravitation towards the reality, towards something real, is what drove me as a person internally. But of course, then there is a journalistic duty and there is a civil duty that, that drives you when I am in Ukraine, for example. And there is just a human motivation when people come to you and say, you have to film this. You, ha you have to make sure that the world sees that. And I know they know that nothing will change. But also I know that they want to be heard and I, I want to help them somehow. And this constant feeling of frustration when you are watching doctors trying to save a child or an adult and you're just filming and you're useless. You can't really stop bleeding with a photo or a video. Uh, you cannot resurrect the dead by making a, a film, mm. right? But you still stay in there and you're still doing it because when the crime is happening, and you're just standing aside and not doing anything, you feel like you're participating in the crime. You know, I think that there are some people, I mean, your film is, I should say, very unflinching, and you do see heartbreaking tragedy. But some of the people did seem to feel, and that's one of the, another element of the heartbreak, that if the world could see what was happening in Mariupol, there would be outrage, a response, something would happen. But, of course, it didn't work out that way, at least not yet. 
Well, yeah. And again, as I said before, probably even more important for these people is just to know that they are hurt and they are not ignored. That's probably the only worst thing that can happen to us as humans is when we are uh, in pain is not just suffering, but also to know that you're ignored, that your suffering and your loss doesn't just have meaning, but also is denied to you by propaganda, for example, by just saying that you're an actor or by saying that it's not true and it's all fake. Yeah, that has been the Russian response is uh, like we have here, unfortunately, when there's a tragedy, people say there's crisis actors pretending. And that is what Russia's response to some of these images of yours has been. Yeah. So, of course, then it's so important for people to feel that they are heard, even if they know it's not going to change much. But it, it gives you the energy to keep surviving, to keep fighting. Now, did you go to Mariupol, you know, because the invasion was underway or I'm trying to remember if you were already there or you went there? No, no. Um, we were in Bakhmut at that point. Uh, our team was responsible for covering Donbass before the full-scale invasion. And we knew Mariupol very well. We knew Donbass very well. We've reported from there for eight years at that point. So we saw how Russia is preparing to attack and they were quite clear about it in their media. There were suggestions from our sources, from uh, Ukraine military, from other journalists. So just piecing the puzzle together, we, we saw the probability of Russia's attack as almost 100%. And then we, we had to choose where we will be when this happens. And Mariupol seemed to be one of the main targets for Russia, regardless of what would be the scale of their attack. And that's why it went there. And... I, I can say I hoped that it's not going to be what it was. But at the same time, I saw what Russia did to Aleppo. I was going to say, because you were in Syria and I've watched so many documentaries about similar scenes yeah. in Syria. And yeah. the common denominator exactly. is Russia and Putin, you know. Yeah, yeah. And we know what happened to Grozny. And, well, I remember speaking to doctors and civilians in Mariupol in the first couple of days when the city wasn't yet bombed heavily and they didn't believe, nobody wanted to believe that Russia is going to do it, but they did. Coming up after the break, Mstislav Chernoff talks about promoting his film on the awards circuit while his home country is still under devastating attack. You're listening to The Business from KCRW. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Seen on the Screen is available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. This is The Business, and I'm Kim Masters. 
Mstislav Chernoff's Oscar-nominated film, 20 Days in Mariupol, plunges viewers into Russia's relentless attack on one town in Ukraine. As other international journalists left the besieged city, Chernoff and his team stayed. They captured unflinching footage of death, destruction, and war crimes. March 2nd. Russian strikes are causing problems with internet and electricity. All the international journalists we met in Mariupol have left. But we decide to stick with the medics for a few days. We drive to the left bank, where the heaviest fighting is happening. So when you go to Mariupol, are you at that point you're not thinking about making a whole film. You're doing a news job. You have a constant challenge of trying to get the footage that you've managed to shoot out of the country. Yeah, that's my primary work. Uh, and considering the urgency, that was the priority always to shoot everything I see and to send it as soon as possible and to make sure it will get to to editors and to the channels. And that's what I was doing in Mariupol. At the same time, I am still a storyteller. I'm always looking for deeper stories. For I'm also a novelist, writer. So I'm always looking, trying to look at a bigger picture and at the deeper meanings of, of the events around me. And after the maternity hospital bombing, when I saw how rescue workers are carrying Irina on the stretcher, we know her name now. Um, yeah, you're, I'm just going to say you're referencing a very famous image of a very pregnant woman on a stretcher yes. who ultimately was killed. But uh, it was an image seen around the world. Yeah. Yeah. And when I saw that and I, I recognized as it was unfolding in front of me, uh, I recognized the importance and symbolism and the possible impact of these images. And I realized that the story of Mariupol is not just a story of Mariupol, it's something much bigger. And it needs to be told in a more comprehensive uh, way that that shows the scale and the symbolism of the tragedy. But again, at that point, my main objective was to survive, to survive and to record everything, every minute. There seems to be a little bit of a conflicting reaction. At one point, a soldier says, stop filming. Other people say, please film. <laughs> I don't know. How did it go with the uh, Ukrainian soldiers? Were they understanding mostly of what you were trying to do? Um, I was mostly focusing, we were mostly focusing on the civilian population, of course, because at that point, that was a main focus and, and, and the main story that was unfolding. So we did not interact with soldiers that much. Mm -hmm. I think the relationship with, with everyone inside the city, including soldiers, has changed over, over the course of the siege because the more desperate the situation became, more people realized that uh, they're absolutely, completely trapped and that there is no information coming in and out. And probably our cameras is the only communication with an outside world, which is such an extraordinary thing because it's it's, a, it's half a million city. And to have only one team of journalists reporting is quite unusual. But anyway, the more people realized that we are the only way to communicate with the outside world, more they kind of accepted us and invited us to continue our work. And so we did until we just lost everything. But the fact that we were saved by a team 
of uh, special forces that is specializing on extraction of, of civilian hostages. We were fortunate enough that they came. Again, tells me that they recognized that journalistic work or documentary work is important at that moment. So you were working for the Associated Press. I mean, I know that at NPR, when they had people in war zones, there was always this agonizing over when to pull them out and whether somebody was going to get injured. I'm sure AP feels the same way. I mean, was there any back and forth about you should get out now and you say, let me stay? Or were you all on the same page? Um, Because I know well the editors who I work with and who I worked with before, uh, there was a mutual agreement that they leave this to our judgment. Uh, of course, any conversation with the editor starts uh, from the security assessment. What is evacuation plan? What is uh, your location? What is the closest medical extraction point? What are plan B for evacuation? Uh, you know, so all this is constantly talked about and, and considered and uh, weight against the importance of the story. And when you have trust of your editors, that's probably the key of good work. Yes. Because you are the one who sees what's going on. You are the one who sees the real picture. I know that the AP has a relationship with public television frontline, I think. Uh, At what point do you guys say it's a film? Yes. So after maternity hospital bombing, I saw that this story has to be told in a different way. So I started recording much more than I would need for news. And you actually can see that in a film as well, how the editing and how the storytelling and shooting changes. So when we broke out of the city, I had about 30 hours of footage and we almost immediately started speaking to the front line. I think it just like two days after we left I remember the drama theater was bombed and I felt so frustrated and so sad that we were not there. And there's hundreds of people probably died and no one even can show this. Yes. And some of the women who survived the maternity hospital bombing moved to that drama theater, to that shelter, and and they were killed in that strike. And so it was a very, very sad moment. And I really, really wanted to make sure that it will not just disappear and be washed away by the sea of information. Like, Like everything I did before in Ukraine since 2014 and in other countries, I really wanted it to stay. I felt like I owe this to people of Mariupol, to those families who lost everything. So we started speaking with the front line and it was quite a small team. It's me and Daryl McCruden from AP. He worked as a, as a chief producer and it was Michel Meissner, frontline editor and producer and Rainy Aronson, who was the chief producer at the frontline. And that's it. So let's say a small production team. We just came together and started collaborating, started talking about how to make this film, how to make that story. And from there we went on. It must seem a bit surreal to be, you know, here, you were at Sundance, you have been on festival circuit, award circuit, and meanwhile, the situation in Ukraine is getting worse, I think, and the heartbreak of that. I I don't know how you, how do you manage the contrast between Academy lunch or something and uh, what's going on on the ground in Ukraine? Yeah, I remember, so when I, when we left, after Mariupol, I went to Bucha, which was a Another horrifying experience. And I went to Kharkiv, my hometown, which was heavily bombed. And for a while, it seemed like it's also going to be surrounded. 
and will suffer the same thing that Mariupol did. And I was there and we started editing already. So I was shooting the bombing of my hometown and I was editing already with Michelle together. We started editing and going through all the footage from Mariupol. And I thought that was a difficult psychological experience. I was almost collapsing because everything just came back on me and I didn't sleep much. And uh, the contrast between two worlds, sometimes it feels even more painful, is if, if you can say that. Because when you are in Ukraine, you feel like you're still doing something. You're still making a difference, even a little. But when you are on a festival circuit, when you are traveling, you don't feel like you're doing anything. But in fact, you do. And that's what's holding me here. That's why now I am uh, still going and still presenting a film. Because right now, it's not enough just to make a film or to shoot the film and then make it. It's also about showing it to the people. And the film we are showing is a difficult film. We are inviting the audience into a war zone. That's what I wanted as a director. I wanted to make this experience as realistic as it can be and to bring the audience right inside the siege right inside this pain and fear so we are inviting people to be part of something uncomfortable important but uncomfortable and that takes a lot of respect and a lot of effort and that's why i'm here so it never feels irrelevant even if i am in in the spaces which are surprisingly comfortable I'm always aware of this task that I have, a task to just carry the film forward and, and show it to as many people as possible. Mr. Slav Chernov is the director of 20 Days in Mariupol. The film can be streamed on the PBS app or the PBS YouTube channel for free. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you for this conversation. And that's The Business. Joshua Farnham produced and edited today's program with help this week from Sue Margulies and Nick Lamponi, who mixed the show. You can stream The Business as well as other great KCRW shows on kcrw.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kim Masters. We'll see you next week on The Business. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.